0: Hi, I'm E Marie Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Episode twelve. Chapter twenty-one. By the time we step through the entryway, the star parlor is nothing short of anarchy. Graham and Arden, standing furthest from the entryway, are having an intense exchange. Arden is doing most of the talking, and his face is flushed with irritation, while Graham's stance, with crossed arms and lifted chin, screams defiance. Fanny is trying to intercede, but with little success. Mabry is hunkered down in a pile of pillows on the floor, calling instructions off a hollow into her headset, occasionally looking up at the other three with an expression of distress on her face. Can we start? I say, but I'm ignored. No one even acknowledges me. I rub my forehead and sigh in exasperation. I'm wondering how I'm going to bring all these individuals together when an ear-splitting whistle erupts from beside me. All conversation halts immediately, and every head turns to look in the direction of Fallon March, who is removing her fingers from her lips as though she just consumed a bonbon. She looks at me, clearly pleased with herself, and gestured toward the now silent group before us. "'Let's start,' I say." Or, let's continue, but perhaps think about including all the participants in whatever this discussion is? I look pointedly at Arden and Graham, both of whom continue to wear hostile expressions and exchange scowls as I speak. Yes, let's, echoes Fanny, who begins prodding the two men toward the center of the room while gathering pillows and dropping them into a loosely formed circle. Reluctantly, they respond, and eventually everyone present is seated. Macha, who is still at clinical with Holly, is patched in via Mabry's holo. We start with an update from Matcha on Holly's and Bennett's conditions. As Fallon predicted, Holly is still unconscious but shows no signs of entering stasis. The blue stains on her body where she contacted the substance from the sphere are still visible but have faded dramatically. Bennett's bioequivalent left hand has been removed as a precaution and a new one ordered for him. It should arrive in a day or so. Bennett is fine, Macha explains. His only problem right now is stress-related. He's worried about Holly, so we're keeping him for observation, but that's just so he can be here when she wakes up. The good news relaxes the entire group. I catch both Arden and Graham smiling as Macha describes Bennett's concern for Holly. That's great, I say. Can Bennett have visitors? We need to talk to him about what happened. Certainly, Macha confirms. He'll be expecting you, and we'll probably be grateful for the diversion. Macha signs off, and I look around the room. Fanny sits upright with her legs extended in front of her, looking from person to person with an air of expectation. Arden and Graham, sitting together but leaning slightly away from one another, maintain rigid, almost bristly postures. Mabry leans back against one wall, buried in electronics, eyes darting from screen to screen. Fallon March, lounging against a pile of pillows with her hands behind her head, is the most relaxed person here. "'What is this place?' she asks. "'It's very fancy. Almost feels sophisticated.' No one feels like answering her. Let's revisit our line of questioning from this morning, I say. In response, Fallon pushes herself up to a sitting position and looks pointedly at Mabry and Fanny. Those two weren't here this morning, she says. Isn't there some kind of regulation about consistency and in interrogation? First, they're both impacted by what we're going to be talking about. Mabry is a local security lead and Fanny is your pod leader, I point out. Second, this isn't an interrogation. It's a friendly chat in which you are participating voluntarily as per our earlier agreement. Fallon looks skeptical. My accommodations have been sorted. Where are they? You're sitting in them. A satisfied smile appears on Fallon's face and she looks around the star parlor. Comfortable, private, easily securable. Is there only one entrance? There's a sort of escape hatch built in the floor under the rug at the entryway, Graham explains. It's only for emergencies and requires an energetic climb down a hanging ladder that deploys when the hatch is opened. It's a very long way down. Fallon peers out across Iona Square. I can see that. Will my things be brought up? All of them? Personal items only. The rest will be put into secured storage as soon as we've finished our chat, Fanny confirms. Fallon looks vaguely displeased, but wisely doesn't complain. I need a security detail, she adds. Oh, I'm activating an electronic barrier at the ground floor lift and across the walkway just past the door, Mabry explains. We'll also monitor for attempted breach. Fallon settles back against the cushions again and waves one hand in the air, apparently indicating the entirety of what's been discussed. This is acceptable, she says. I'll answer your questions if I can. Tell us about your experience with Blue, I say. Fallon lets out a short laugh. Blue, she repeats charmingly provincial. Just tell us and skip the commentary, snaps Graham. You clearly know a great deal about it. How? Fallon eyes him disdainfully. I know a lot about it because I've been hearing about it for decades, she responds. It's been in development for almost 30 years. That's not possible, Graham argues. It was developed just a few years ago to be used on Bartizel In the event of a pandemic, blah, 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 blah. Right, right. But surely you know that that pandemic story was just that. It was a story. This thing you call blue has been around in one form or another for a long time and has a wide range of legitimate clinical uses. It puts people into an irreversible stasis. What's legitimate about that? I ask. I cannot keep the incredulity out of my voice, but Fallon isn't phased in the least. It has dozens of practical medical applications, and it's not irreversible. All the Ionians in the room exchange astonished looks. It can be reversed, asks Graham. How? There's an antidote. It's administered according to a specific protocol, which brings the patient out of stasis. Fallon looks around the room, her eyes narrowed in annoyance. Really? How else might an antidote work? Are you all blistering idiots here? We were told there was no antidote, Graham says carefully. That was initially the case. The antidote we have is tested and reliable when used with the initial version of the stasis-inducing agent. Uh, It hasn't been tested with some of the more recently developed variations, so it may not work with every formulation. It's not terribly surprising to me that you're ignorant of this. Only a handful of people know. Graham's jaw muscles work as he considers Fallon. How do you know for certain that this antidote exists? He presses. Because my mother developed it, she retorts, burrowing further back into the pillows. She also invented the chemical compound you call blue. Arden leans forward. And your mother is? Dr. Janelle Heron. Chief Medical Officer Janelle Heron? Arden asks in an incredulous tone. That's her. Fallon smiles broadly and crosses one leg over the other. She might as well be on a luxurious homeworld beach with a cocktail in her hand. I'm here because of her. I mean, uh, I'm here because of the accident. I mean, that part's legitimate, but I'm also working on behalf of my mother, who is probably speaking with your boss at this very moment, Commander Wilson. I'm anticipating the return of my squeaky-clean record any second now. Arden's face falls. Can we back up a bit, I ask, not really caring about high-level company tussle between chiefs of tactical security and medical? You said there's an antidote to Blue. Did you somehow use some on Holly? Is that why she didn't in stasis? No, that's something different. Would sand help our people who are in stasis now? No, it's too late for that. Can we use the antidote to revive our people who are in stasis now? Probably, but I don't have any yet. What do you mean? I mean I don't have any. Yet. You're creating some? Fallon rolls her eyes, like you would have the capability here on Backwater Central. We should have the capability, I say. Homeworld supplies our medical facilities and tech. If they have it, we have it. Fallon lets out a short, sharp laugh. Well, that's lovely, but not necessary. That skiff that's bringing the kid's new hand will have a package for me on it. I should have had some arrive already by different means, but it went missing before I could track it down. Is that what was in the sprites? Arden asks. How many? Five? Seven. Four on the night of my arrival and three more a couple of nights ago. Sprites? I ask. What are sprites? Oh, they're almost like flying tin cans, Mabry says, looking up from her screens. They're called sprites because they make a pretty show as they come into the atmosphere, but they're actually reinforced containers designed to be released into low orbit to plunge through to the ground later. They're bigger than tin cans, obviously, and they're round. The smallest ones are about three feet in diameter. But the idea is to get materials on the ground without a skiff or a lander, primarily used for places that are sparsely populated without any kind of pad facilities, more efficient and less expensive than trying to dry land a skiff. And more clandestine, Fallon adds, sitting upright and leaning toward Arden. How did you know the sprites were sent here? I'm very surprised. She's talking to him now like he's a trusted work colleague. It's hard to believe that just this morning we were all thinking we had Fallon march over a barrel. I saw the first ones the night you arrived, and Faith saw one more night before last, Arden says. In my head, I hear my own voice saying, We don't have meteors here, and I wonder how many more things could possibly come to light that Arden has lied to me about. I must look glum because I catch Arden eyeing me with an apologetic and concerned expression, but I push aside my personal disappointment for now and press on with the questioning. You say they went missing. How? I ask. The first set was picked up by someone else by the time I got to the coordinates. I was on my way to retrieve the second set when... Here she falters and begins fumbling for words. When I was distracted by something else. I haven't had a chance to search for them since. All of the sprites contained antidote? Uh, not exactly. Valon's breezy demeanor disintegrates somewhat, and she begins tapping her fingernails against the maroon floor pillow she's sitting on. Part of our mission here, my mother's mission, you see, is to work on development of antidotes for all the various forms of blue. She was also sending me samples so I could match my experiments to what was used. So you're saying that second set of canisters contained blue that could be administered by different delivery methods? Arden interrupts with a glower. You had weaponized blue sent here to Iona, and now it's missing. I can't believe the hubris. What arrogant idiots you are! Fallon makes a high pitched shriek of protest. Her momentary affinity with Arden has apparently just ended. No one else was supposed to get their hands on it, she says sharply, her eyes flashing. And as for our hubris, how do you think anyone is ever going to revive your friends without having the exact same thing that put them into stasis to work on? You're the arrogant idiot. Weaponized Blue was here long before I arrived. It was here before you arrived. It came here with the transferees from Bartizel. I try hard not to, because it seems an unfair equivalency. But everyone in the room has the same thought, and every head turns to look at Graham Thorne. The tension in the room has escalated to a point of almost being unbearable, and I realize from the smug, disgusted expression Arden throws Graham that this must play a part in what they were arguing about so intensely when Fallon and I first came into the star parlor. For his part, Graham might as well be wearing a dark cloud over his head. His eyes are lowered to the floor and his shoulders are slumped. His anguish is palpable, and he looks as helpless as I think we all feel. Arden is ready to reinvigorate their fight, but I make an executive decision. We're going to break for tonight, I say. I'm going to speak with Bennett. Everyone get some rest and we'll come together here again tomorrow. Mabry, could you sort out shifts and find a time that works for the group? And all of you, I know there are going to be a lot of questions. Please try to think of ways to approach them that don't make accusations or assumptions. And if anyone here has anything they are not still being forthright about, I look pointedly from Arden to Graham to Fallon March, be prepared to share everything without exception regardless of whether I ask you the right question or not. Fallon flops back onto the pillows again with an exaggerated sigh, but I ignore her and head for the walkway. I hear Fanny tell her to expect her personal bag and some dinner to be delivered shortly and reassure her that the bulk of her belongings will be safe in secure storage. This again elicits far less objection than we heard when Fallon was on the verge of having to share a room with two other people. It's then that I remember Tomas... I forgot to tell you that your beau is waiting for you, I say with a conspiratorial smile. But Fanny's response is not what I expect. Her annoyance is written on her face when she speaks. I told him not to show up here tonight, she says. Why did he come? He said you invited him to dinner, I say, frankly surprised. Why would he lie about that? Are you two still involved? Apparently one of us is, she says, wrinkling her forehead in consternation. I mean, he's amusing, and he certainly came along at the right time, but he's gotten very clingy, and I'm not going to have time for it anymore. I've tried to make that clear to him several times, but it never seems to sink in. I guess he's smitten with you, I say, but I can tell by Fanny's stern expression that she has reached her limit. It looks like it's not going to be a good night for Tomas. The lift is small, and only three people can fit into it safely. We approach as a group, but then Arden glides up behind me and pulls me aside so that Fanny, Graham, and Mabry can enter first. I'll go talk to Bennett with you if you don't mind, he says, a touch too loudly that suggests the comment is more for them than for me. Of course I don't mind, I say, not looking at him. I'm still feeling a sharp pang of disappointment over his lie about the sprites. Last night seems as if it happened in some kind of distant dream instead of less than 24 hours ago. And as the silver cylinder closes and the others begin their descent, he says, I'm sorry. Please don't be angry with me. I'm not angry, I say, looking into his face. And I'm not heartbroken. I'm not even sad. I'm just tired of it. How many times am I going to have to hear you apologize for lying to me? It seems like it happens every time I think you finally told me everything. He has no response and looks down at the floor, shoving his hands into his pocket. Frankly, I'm relieved because I'm tired of saying the same thing over and over. Right now, I want to focus on finding out how Bennett and Holly came to be in possession of those fears and hang on to the shred of good news that there is hope we may soon be able to revive Paulie and Carloa. We walk over to Clinical in Silence, which gives me an opportunity to enjoy the peace of night on Iona. At this hour, our little beige world turns dark purple and periwinkle and has a strange kind of beauty all its own. Only the workers who are required to do evening shifts, like those in clinical, are out and about now. Most of our people have eaten their dinner and are settled into their pods, playing games in common rooms and courtyards, making music, reading, exercising, meditating. Home world was so different, with fractious noise and energy and movement almost 24 hours a day until the waning came. I used to like that life, I think to myself. I don't think I would like it any anymore. Arden picks up on my expression and breaks the silence by saying, This world is extraordinary at this time of night. It's like a beautiful painting of a world, so peaceful, so full of potential, and so still. A pause. Would you ever want to go back to home world? I half-smile, remembering someone else asking a similar question. I also remember my answer, which was true then, but is very different now. I don't think so, I say. Everything I need is here. Would you want to stay here if Iona became a company planet? I'm a bit startled by the question. That's crazy, I say. We're on the verge of becoming an independent home world. Iona isn't going to become a company planet. Arden is undeterred, and his voice takes on an undercurrent of uneasiness. Suppose for a moment that something happens, and Iona becomes a company planet, not a sector dump, but part of the company's top-tier portfolio. Would you stay here? I don't know, I respond. I don't know, I respond. I have a different emotional relationship to the company than you do. I can't say if I would feel comfortable staying here if it was under company control. It would change Iona. It might not be Iona anymore. What if it was still Iona, but better, he asks. He seems to be hinting at something, but as usual, he's less than forthcoming. The lights of Clinical Glow Blue just ahead of us tinting the sand, and I stop and turn to face Arden. If you know something, you need to tell me now, I say. Is there a plan by the company to take over, Iona? I wouldn't call it a plan. It's more of an interest, from different sectors for different reasons, he says, his gaze shifting from my face to the stars and then to the sand at his feet. I know that the Weapons Development Division thinks Iona would be extremely valuable to them, and from what we saw this afternoon with Holly, I'm beginning to think we found her. Why? Look for the why. I had almost forgotten our charge to ourselves. I look down at my feet, and the realization hits me. It's the sand. The very guts of our planet can render the company's most prized weapon ineffective. So, of course, the company wants to control it. And suddenly, I understand much better the why of what happened on Bartizel. There was no pandemic, no cult, no social unrest, not even any slowdown in business. The company lied to Bartizel's citizens and leadership and staged an elaborate theater that immobilized or displaced hundreds of people so they could close the station and control the sand of that planet, sand so like that of Iona, terrain so like Iona's, that it must have the same effect. Bartizel, I whisper for confirmation, and Arden simply nods. Yes, he says, and now that interest has spilled over to Iona. Did our friend Graham have any role in that, I ask, and Arden's forehead creases in thought. I'm still trying to learn how deep his involvement goes, he says. On Bardizel he was genuine in what he was trying to do, and he worked very hard to get people out of the compound before disaster struck. I like Graham, and I'm grateful that he seems to be on board with us here, but sometimes he knows things he shouldn't, and his stories don't quite line up. He's generally a straightforward guy, but he does have a dark past, and his family is even less forthright. That's why I was assigned to him in the first place. I feel strange talking about Graham this way, but I resist the urge to say so. I also resist the urge to ask more questions. I can't quite wrap my mind around the existence of a shadowy, sinister Graham compared to the Graham I know now. But I've also had reservations about his motivations, his shifting demeanor, and his changing allegiances. I wonder what kind of secrets he may be keeping despite our heart-to-heart talk at the storage warren just last night. Let's focus on Bennett, I finally say, walking again toward the glowing lights of Clinical. One thing at a time. Arden laughs cynically. One thing at a time, he says. Wouldn't that be nice? Bennett turns out to be physically well, if psychologically shaky, when we speak to him. He's sitting tensely in the middle of his bed, torturing the edge of the sheet with the fingers of his natural hand. The technician assigned to him tells us he won't lie down to sleep and instead sits, alert and fidgety, listening for any kind of disturbance coming from Holly's room next door. When I ask him where this sphere came from, he tells a fairly straightforward story. Holly found it just behind your pod and brought it over to show me, he says. She thought it was an egg. We were thinking about how we might try to hatch it, and I was holding it up to the sun to try to see through the shell, because my grandfather used to do that with sand turtle eggs, and I guess I squeezed it a little too hard with my artificial hand. It broke open and the liquid started oozing out. At first, Holly was upset because she thought I'd killed her egg, but the liquid was so pretty and not like anything we'd ever seen before. Silvery and shiny and all kinds of colors at once. We knew then that it wasn't an egg, but we didn't know. His face is twisting with distress and tears are forming in his eyes, so I finished the story for him. Holly touched the liquid, I say, more of a statement than a question. Bennett nods. She swirls some onto her fingers. And then she said it started to feel funny, so she tried to wipe it off on the hem of her dress. Only it was getting really sticky, and it got on her thighs, and then she lost feeling in her hands and started turning blue. He rubs the empty stump of his left bioequivalent arm with his real right hand and hiccups instead of bursting into tears. I'm sorry, he croaks out, turning his head away. It's okay, Bennett. There's no way you could have known, I say, wondering as I say the words, if we did the right thing by concealing our find in Polly's old office from the residence of Iona. Bennett finally looks at me, and his face is desperate. She's really going to be all right? he asks. You aren't just telling me that to keep me from freaking out? Arden reaches over and squeezes Bennett's shoulder. Yes, she's going to be fine, he says. You'll be able to see her as soon as she wakes up. Matcha has promised that you're the first person she'll tell. Arden's reassurance seems to calm Bennett a little, and he finally relaxes against the pillows, propping him up. Thank you for helping us today, Bennett says to me. Please tell Chief March we're really, really grateful. You're very welcome, and I think she already knows, I say. Get some sleep. He nods, but it's clear he won't be falling asleep until he's convinced Holly is out of danger. We next check on Holly. She still bears a faint blue stain on her hands and thigh, but the blue that was trying to overtake the rest of her body has otherwise receded. Matcha has removed the earlier precaution of quarantine, much to the relief of Hen, who is slumped in the chair next to her bed, watching her carefully, a bucket of fresh Iona sand at his feet. Her vitals are strong and normal, Matcha confirms when she joins us. She's still not awake, as you can see, but I can't even call her unconscious. Her stats are more like someone who's exhausted and in a deep sleep. If Chief March is correct, she should wake up on her own in a few hours. Our last stop is the word that now holds Carloa and Polly. I haven't seen Polly except for that brief glimpse the day I broke his quarantine and caused such havoc. Seeing him now is almost as shocking. He's the same turquoise blue as Carloa. The gashes in his abdomen and head have healed, but he remains armless and his eyes are still sealed shut. We'll fit him for bioquilibrant arms once we revive him, Mancha explains, and I'm grateful for her optimistic phrasing. His eyes were severely damaged by flying debris in the explosion. I think his chances of regaining his sight are slim at best. Carla was just the same as the last time I saw her. The hovering monitor that was constantly tracking her vitals now sits unused on the shelf at the far side of the ward. Instead, she and Polly are both checked by technicians every four hours. I understand her better now, but there's still so many questions,' I say to Arden. I keep thinking she's an important part of this mystery, but there's no way we can find out unless she can be revived. It's hard to make small talk with someone you've literally been with almost every waking minute over the last twenty four hours, so Arden and I settle for companionable silence on the walk back to the pod. A few minutes into it, he reaches over and takes my hand, and I feel both a smoky relief and a vague sense of conflict. I know he loves me, but his love for me made him lie to me before. I know I love him, but I'm still not completely sure I trust him. There may be more things yet to learn, questions he's dodged or forgotten, answers he's fudged or simply failed to explain. But there is so much more weighing on me, these personal issues feel like tiny little irritations by comparison. I'm beginning to dread tomorrow. Are you all right? Arden asks as we walk into the pod. It's quiet and dark except for the flickering amber light from the dying hearth. I guess so. I'm just overwhelmed. What happened today? Holly's no part of this investigation. She's totally innocent, and someone is responsible. We don't know who. I'm frustrated and so angry, but there's no place for that anger to go. I rub my eyes and sigh. Arden's face is empathetic and concerned. Do you want company tonight? Not for, you know, but just... His voice drifts off. He reaches up and, in a tender gesture, tucks behind my ear a strand of my wild hair that has escaped its bonds. I find myself conflicted again. I want to be my own woman. I want to take care of myself. I want peace and security. I want warmth and comfort and love. But most of all, I want to make my own decisions. So I do. Yeah, company sounds good. Arden's lips curve up into a small smile. He takes my hand again and together we walk down the little hallway that leads to my room. Chapter 22 When morning comes, I'm still raw from the previous day's events. I wake up with the thought that I hope today is a normal day, although I have no idea what normal might be at this point. The rising chimes haven't yet sounded, but Arden is already up and half-dressed. He greets me with a warm kiss and hot coffee. I'm on duty today, and I heard a maintenance assignment for you come through General about two minutes ago, he says. So I guess that means we'll be talking to Fallon again this evening. He looks disappointed as he says it, but I'm happy for the delay. I drink my coffee lazily and watch him buzz around my room getting ready. When did you move your toothbrush in here, I ask, and he winks at me in the mirror. I have accomplices, he says. I grin and pull myself out of the hammock, stretching and letting out one last yawn. Pretty sure of yourself, aren't you? I say, joining him by the mirror. The tiny sink is crowded with his stuff, mouthwash, toothpaste, extra macho deodorant. I wrap my arms around his waist, and he loops his arm around me, and I look at us in the mirror side by side. The years haven't been too hard on either of us. We both have a few tiny crinkles on either side of our eyes, and he in particular sports faint worry lines across his forehead, but his smile is as bright and captivating as it always was. His body is stronger and more hard-muscled than it used to be, no longer the lithe form of the 26-year-old engineer I first met on Homeworld 10 years ago. I think to myself a little disconcertingly that he has the body of a warrior now, and I wonder what else might have changed in the intervening years that might not yet have come to the surface. He lifts one hand and tangles our hair together, weaving my mahogany brown into a curl with his shoulder-length golden blonde. I smile at us in the mirror, and he rests his head against mine. "'You're stronger than you used to be,' I say." Space pirate life must be pretty active. He smiles in return. You've always had that focus that I was missing, though. What I do have, I learned from you, so we're both stronger, he says. I make a face and flex my dramatically average bicep. He laughs and clarifies, stronger on the inside. By the time the rising chimes sound, we're both dressed and ready. When we enter the common room together this morning, there are no salutations or sarcastic cheers, although we do get a warm, happy look of acknowledgement from Wenda, who is ferrying food from the kitchen. Hen stayed overnight at Clinical with his sister, so Wenda is temporarily our chef again, and Mabry is filling in as coffee runner. I drop my headset on and tap in, pinging maintenance about the request Arden come through for me. I'm excited to hear that it's a breakdown project, meaning I'll be taking a retiring or damaged skiff or lander and breaking it down to component parts testing them to determine which work or are repairable, and adding those we can use to our spare parts socket. This means I'll get to spend most of the day in the peace and quiet of the pit. The pit is always good thinking time for me, and based on the revelations of the last couple of days, I have a lot of thinking to do. And there are bound to be lots of extra parts our inventory doesn't need, so it's also a great opportunity for me to finally get enough raw material to complete my project, which is so, so close to done. As I head out for my assignment, a hail comes in confirming that Holly is awake and appears completely unscathed from her experience, except for the presence of the faint blue marks on her thigh and the back of one hand. She'll stay in clinical one more day for observation, which will dovetail nicely with Bennett's scheduled procedure to attach his new bioequivalent hand. Thinking about the events of yesterday, I look down at my feet crunching over Iona's gritty beige sand, so empathetically unexceptional and normal in appearance, and wonder who else suspects how valuable this little planet's most basic element might be. That value could be a dramatic blessing and speed Iona's progress to independent homeworld status, or it could be a horrific curse depending on what others might be willing to do to exploit it. Once I'm in the pit with the broken skiff under my hands, I get into a rhythm and let those heavy thoughts go. I manage to get almost four hours of peace. Soon after lunch, I'm called to come above and work materials intake. Among the cargo is one priority medical delivery, which has to be Bennett's new hand. I ping Macha to let her know it's arrived and get it on an auto flat headed to clinical. The remaining items are unremarkable. Sadly, I note that there is no incoming package addressed to Fallon March. After the unloading is done, I spend a little more time in the pit organizing my newly acquired goodies. It's a substantial haul, too large for the cart and stash space, so I procure an auto flat to carry it off to my secret workspace instead. As I watch the flat glide off, I straighten and stretch my muscles, pleasantly sore from the day's physical efforts. I think about heading over to the star parlor to try to chat with Fallon for a few minutes before the others assemble there, hoping she might be less dramatic with a smaller audience. But at that moment, Mabry hails me on my private channel. Something's happening at the storage Warren," she says, barely controlling the anxiety in her voice. The security system just pinged me. Someone's trying to get into number eight. My heart begins to race. Let Arden know, I tell her. I'm on my way. I take a second to grab a couple of choice items from the debris scattered around my feet and run up the ramp to the surface. Within seconds, I've grabbed a scooter and am flying across the sand. It only takes a few minutes to reach the storage, Warren, but I'm already concerned that I might be too late to catch the potential intruder. I ditch the scooter a few hundred feet from the door. Though they're quiet as a whisper, I prefer to make a less dramatic entrance. I hail Mabry on her private channel and ask, Is it still happening? Likely, she responds. They've made several attempts with gaps of a minute or so between each one. The last attempt was about 45 seconds ago. We're all on the way. ETA about two minutes. Keep me informed, I say, pressing myself against the side of the building about 40 feet from the door. There's only one way in and out of the storage, Warren, so if the person attempting to get into my unit is still inside, I'll see them if they try to leave. No more than 30 seconds later, Mabry's voice comes over the headset. Tracking shows someone trying to enter the unit now, she says. I'm not waiting any longer. The spheres in that unit are too dangerous to be discovered by anyone, much less be allowed to fall into the hands of someone who might actually know what they are. Going in, I whisper into the mic, and then I pull off my headset and jam it into my vest pocket. It's in part to prevent distractions, but also to avoid hearing the chorus of objections to my decision that I'm sure are ringing through it at this very instant. I steel my nerves and try to appear at least somewhat casual as I walk to the door and let it read my credentials. The door slides open, and I step inside. The lights are on, but set to a faint glow, just enough to see the outline of the cubbies lining both walls. I walk slowly and quietly to the chair, which is also only dimly lit, and pause at the hallway that leads to number eight. I carefully peer into the opening. It's too dark to see anything clearly, but I can hear muffled sounds, the soft cheering of electronics, and the occasional frustrated mutter. Then footsteps, slow and casual, departing from number eight and moving toward me. Whoever is here apparently thinks they're still alone. That's going to be the advantage I need. I pull out of my belt loop the sharp knife-like segment of piping I snag from my breakdown and wrap my hand tightly around its blunt end. I then press myself against the wall of the chair a few feet from the mouth of the hallway. My heart is pounding like a lander engine on high-gravity liftoff. The figure that emerges into the darkened in chair is preoccupied with some electronics in their hands, muttering quietly. They walk past my position without ever looking up. I raise my makeshift weapon in front of me and wait until the interloper is in the middle of the share, still with their back to me about ten feet past my position. Stop! I command. I have a weapon trained on you. Turn around slowly and keep your hands out in front of you where I can see them. Light's full. The space is immediately flooded with light. Clearly startled, the person freezes, then with outstretched hands trembling, turns to face me. What? What have I done? Don't hurt me! Quimby stutters, his dark eyes wide and terrified. I almost drop my guard. Quimby is such a familiar face to me by now that I nearly forget that he, too, was one of the Bartizel transfers. Still, he seems so scared and confused. I keep my weapon in front of me, but I try to modulate my voice to something strong, but a bit more conversational. You were trying to get into number eight. Why? I heard something. I went to investigate but the door is malfunctioning and won't let me in, even though I'm the administrator. It's not malfunctioning, I explain. We changed the permissions. Only certain people can open number eight now. Oh, I didn't know that. Quimby looks down at the electronics in his hands. I found this wired into the sensor mechanism in the control console. I thought maybe it was the problem. I can put it back right now if you want. I peer at the small unit Quimby is holding out to me. It doesn't look familiar. Let's wait until Mabry gets here and see what she thinks, I say. At this, Quimby brightens significantly. His reply is cut off, however, by the sound of the Warren's main door sliding open and Arden's voice shouting my name. I'm fine. It's all fine, I call out. Come back to the share and let's see if we can get this figured out. I tuck my weapon back into my belt loop, but keep an eye on Quimby. Arden literally runs into the room, his eyes wild, followed by Mabry. Arden looks from me to Quimby, feeling out the situation, and then relaxes somewhat. "'You went off headset. We couldn't raise you,' he says to me. I shake my head, feeling a bit guilty for worrying them all. "'I'm fine. I'm still not sure what's going on here, though.' Arden, still wearing his skepticism on his face, taps into his headset. I hear him say, "'Not entirely a false alarm, but she's all right. Get here when you can.' Mapry speaks up next. "'Quimby?' she says. "'What the hell?' I'm sorry, I guess I did something wrong, Quimby says, gesturing plaintively with his hand still full of tiny electronic parts. I didn't mean to. Oh, forty hells, is that what I think it is? Mabry reaches out and gingerly takes the electronics from Quimby. Probably, Quimby says, clearly relieved to finally have his hands free. I pulled it out of the console. I thought it was what was keeping me from getting in. Oh, no. Mabry looks absolutely despondent. You pulled this out of the control console for number eight? This is terrible. Quimby nods affirmative. I can put it back, he offers. Mabry shakes her head. Before I can ask either of them for clarification, the noise level increases significantly as an entire parade of people enter the warren. In the depths of the hallway, I hear Graham's voice prod, Come on, speed it up, and Fallon snap back, Why is it so damn dark in here? Turn up the lights so I can see where I'm going. Fanny's voice chimes in with, come on, Fallon, even I can walk faster than you are right now, and that's really saying something. Graham is the first to enter the share. He looks from Quimby to Mabry and then stares pointedly at the electronics dangling from Mabry's hands. What's that? he asks. I notice he didn't bother to adjust the lighting nor wait for Fallon, who I still hear swearing and bumping around in the main hallway. It's my worst nightmare, sighs Mabry. All those steps we took to secure entry to number eight, this circumvents it. I'm confused. But then why couldn't Quimby get in, I ask? Because this little guy records access data, she explains, holding up the small device. In order to activate it, you need a signaler, kind of like a little remote. When activated, this plays the data, and the door thinks it's someone with entry permissions asking to open the door. It shuts off automatically once the task is performed, in this case, once the door is open. When it's not activated, the door operates the way we expect it to. So someone's been able to go into number eight without detection since the beginning, I say, my stomach sinking. Well, not exactly. The device needs to record data after it's installed. So whoever hooked this up had to wait for someone authorized to open the door again, at which point it would swipe the access data. Gosh, I didn't even think to attract approved entries, Mapri says, her expression reflecting her dejected spirit. I've only opened this door once since we changed the permissions, and that was when we left the spheres here, I say, looking at Graham. So maybe they haven't had access for very long. Let's go back to the beginning, though, Arden says. Quimby, why were you in here trying to get into number eight? I missed that part. Quimby, now more relaxed, pushes up his glasses and addresses Arden. I came in to organize our new deliveries in the share. I heard a noise down the hallway here, scraping and banging like somebody moving something heavy. I thought it was one of my pod mates, so I yelled down the hallway to see if they wanted some help. But nobody answered, he explains. That was weird, to get no answer at all, so I wondered if something was wrong, and I started walking toward where the noise came from. Did you find anyone or figure out what was making the noise? Arden asks. No, Quimby confirms. I called out again, but no one answered. That's when I heard a thumping sound and clattering, like maybe a mini had failed and dropped its contents. That definitely came from inside number eight, so I wanted to look inside and make sure everything was okay, but I couldn't get in. I thought it was malfunctioning, so I pulled the console apart, and that's when I found that. He gestures at the device now clenched in Mabry's fist. We all exchange anxious looks. We need to make sure nothing is broken in there, Graham says. He's about to shoulder his way through the group into the hallway, but I reach out and stop him. You're right, but I have one more question, I say. Quimby, do you think there was a person involved in making the noise you heard? Could it have been equipment on auto-adjust? He thinks before answering. I'm not sure, he says. The scraping and sliding didn't sound random. It sounded like someone was having trouble operating an auto flat. But I haven't seen anyone, and this is the only way out. So either there was no one here, or the person who was making the noise is still here somewhere hiding, Arden says. Wimby blinks and adjusts his glasses again. Yeah, I guess so. I didn't hear anybody go through the share or leave the building, but Faith came in and I didn't hear that, so it's possible. If only I would thought to look for evidence of people entering and leaving the building, footprints or scooter tracks in the sand, anything. Those clues, if they ever existed, are long trampled and muddied by the sheer number of people who've come into the building in the last 10 minutes. We have to check on those fears, whether there's someone in here or not, Graham says. We have to make sure none of them are broken. I scan the room. Arden, Mabry, Fanny, and even Fallon, who has managed to reach the share, are all nodding in agreement. Yeah, go, I say. Hang on, you'll need me to open the door, says Arden, and the two men trot quickly down the length of the hall to number eight. Can you do this safely? I call out. They exchange looks, and Graham tilts his head in an answer that is not an answer. I think so, Arden responds. Theoretically, these things would contain the blue that affects you if you touch it rather than an aerosolized version. We should be okay as long as we don't physically come into contact with active blue. Before I can object or say anything else, Arden says number eight open, and I hear the soft mechanical swish of the door as it slides out of the way. Both men take a step forward, and Arden gives the command to boost the lighting to full brightness. For a heart-stopping second, neither says anything. Then Arden calls out, We're good, nothing broken, but there's another problem. I rush down the hall toward the storage unit, followed by Mabry. When I step through the door, I see Graham crouched next to what had been our carefully placed collection of spheres, with Arden standing behind him. The mini-flat sits askew and has bumped into the wall, as though it had been programmed with destination coordinates by someone who was attempting to drive it blind, Its delicate cargo has shifted off the flat on one side, explaining the noises that Quimby heard. But of greater concern is the fact that the bundle is now untied and the spheres are no longer neatly stacked inside it. Graham's face is ashen as he reports, There were 27 when we placed them here. Now they're only 24. It's worse than you think, says Fallon, strolling through the door and crouching beside the auto flat. When I found them, there were 30. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back next week for a new episode. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing.